Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Okay, we're here with another episode of the Insider Outsider podcast, and today we have a distinguished guest of Edgar Schein. Edgar Schein is somebody that I've been studying with my whole career around organizational culture, organizational leadership, process consultation, and those are just several of his book topics of over a dozen books and a longtime MIT professor and icon in the organizational change movement. So it's nice to have you here, Ed. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm anxious to share some of the ideas with you that we've been writing about. A little bit of our background, Ed read my book, Four Days to Change, and wrote a great testimonial for it. And then we happened to be at a conference presenting out of that where they write chapters. We decided to co-write a chapter about white male culture. Wonderful. Let's talk about that. So I think one of the things that a lot of, well, this applies to white men in the U.S., but also to some degree in Europe, although I think we're going to talk about the traits that apply particularly in the U.S. around that. But a lot of white men don't realize we have a culture because it's the water we never have to leave. The point about culture is that part of it is very visible and describable, and I'm sure white men recognize the business world and the social world and the sports world that they live in, which you can think of as the artifacts of the culture. But beneath those artifacts is some basic assumptions that people hold, and they have grown up with those assumptions, so they don't even realize that they take them for granted and that there are indeed other cultures mostly identified by the anthropologists, that may have very different assumptions about what life is all about. So we could talk about some of those assumptions. Yeah, and I find a lot of white men say, I don't have a culture. Other people have cultures. The basic definition of culture for me is a set of shared values and assumptions and beliefs that have worked so well in the past to make us what we are that we now take them for granted and don't realize how much they color the way we view the world. So, for example, we totally take it for granted that our society, the U.S. culture, is built on rugged individualism, the frontier mentality, the value of competition, which we totally see in sports and frequently here referred to as uh, the only thing that matters is winning. That's a rather crude way of putting it, but you hear that not only in the sports world, 
You hear that in the business world and you hear that in debates and you hear that all through the place. Another one that goes with that is that we like things to be clear. We don't have much tolerance for ambiguity. Things are either this way or that way. You either compete or the opposite of of competing collaboration is not even taken seriously in our culture unless work demands it. Uh So we are work-oriented and competition between us and among us is one of the major ways that we successfully compete and have become as powerful a nation as we have. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point, Ed, is that the culture has worked for a lot of good things and created a lot of accomplishments, both physically and gross development product. As a country, the culture gets embedded as assumptions because it's successful. And so we're not, by describing it, saying any way that it's bad. Culture is a product of our experience not something that someone imposes on us or says that we should have. And that comes about through early leaders saying, here's how we should do things. In a company, the founders of the company, in the U.S., the the leaders of the various immigration movements who had a vision of how life should be, if it doesn't work, we never hear about it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. If it does work, it becomes embedded as this is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you talk about rugged individualism, I think about in some icons like the Marlboro Man, the John Wayne ethos, that you hear the phrase in America, pick, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make a place for yourself. You're your own being, that you're responsible for, for creating your future. What facilitated that, by the way, was the frontier. Because I think in dense societies where there was no frontier, if people didn't like what the existing culture offered them, they could not really move somewhere else. They were stuck with having to live with it. In the U.S., every time somebody didn't like the way their particular colony or community was working, they could pick up the pieces, pick up their family and go west. Uh And maybe one of the paradoxes of today's world is that the frontier is no longer there. Uh There is no west anymore. We're having to confront the fact, what do we do with all these super competitive impulses that the rugged individualism has taught us to value? Yeah, we actually have to fit in, be conscious of how we are together, which is the other part of individualism in the world. Some people organize more around collectivism. And the Asia and other cultures have that more, I think the U.S., we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, so stand up and speak up if you want to be heard. And sometimes in the collectivist cultures, you actually get ostracized if you stand up and individualize yourself. These other cultures talk about the tall poppy syndrome. It's the tall poppy that gets cut. Yep, yep. And of course, the curious thing about society is that without a group, without a society, there is no such thing as an individual. So these are different versions of individualism. Asian societies also have individualism, but it's an individualism that's based on commitment to the group, on solidarity, 
on doing what the group needs rather than what you yourself need. So basically, you're saying all cultures have both of those, and that so by they definition, just yeah, yeah, you well, can't imagine an individual without a group. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the way this plays out in U.S. and beyond is that if I take my individualism to an extreme, I may not be willing to ask for help. I might be seen as a weakness. I might, may not be able to say I don't know the answer to this question. That is a very astute observation. Because I don't think we realize that the whole mentality of rugged individualism makes us feel that only if you succeed and only if you know better than everybody else and only if you have the knowledge do you have status in the society. And we've kind of built that norm that's the people who know the most or at least pretend to know the most who, who always tell rather than listen that get status and only realize that this doesn't work if the task is so complex that in truth they don't know enough. That's where the rubber hits the road. If you do know enough, you're in good shape. <laughs> but nowadays, very few people know enough to go it alone. I think that also values extroversion in a culture. You got to speak up and get your voice out there. And some people are not even heard. That's right. And it relates directly to another aspect of culture, namely the reward system that is built in for how do you get status. In most older traditional cultures, some of the Asian and Latin and European cultures, the sociologists would say you get your status from the ascribed who you are. You're a member of the aristocracy by birth and so on. And the U.S. rejected that totally and said, no, no, no. It doesn't mean anything who you were the child of or what family belonged to. What you get your status from is what you actually personally accomplish. We are an achievement society rather than an ascription society. And that plays out in terms of the reward system, which is built entirely about accumulating wealth and uh, property and measuring status by that accumulation rather than by your background or your family history or any other kind of criterion. Which is ideal that we're a meritocracy, that you can create whatever you want to create as long as you put yourself down and work hard, that action over reflection that focus on that, which is kind of a cool ideal to have as a possibility. Well, the action over reflection is a very subtle but deep and important angle on this U.S. culture, namely that if you gain status by what you do, you have to be doing something. If the doing of it like barn raising in the old days where a whole community moved, if the doing of it required the help of others, you did it right away. You suddenly became a group, and you suddenly became very relational. But the minute the barn was built and finished, the minute the task was done, you sort of treat the relationships as the means to the end. 
and don't value that in that relationship of working together, you might actually have also become a better person. And it's only now that we're beginning to ask the question, is this a handicap to always be action-oriented and not value group work and relationships in a situation where the task itself is more interdependent? I love to talk about this in the context of the relay race. The relay race is quintessentially being the best runners, but we forget that if you don't pass the baton accurately, and if you drop the baton, you lose the race no matter how fast you were. And I think more and more work today is like the relay race. You both have to be good at running, but you have to be equally good at passing the baton, especially, say, in medicine. You want the world's best doctor to be your surgeon, but if the surgeon gives bad information to the nurse and she gives the patient the wrong medicine on the ward and the patient dies, it was the baton pass that failed, not the quality of the surgeon. Mm -hmm. I like that story, and I, I think about other cultures, really, you wouldn't dream of doing a task together or working together until you actually sat down and really connected some cultures even for a day just to build that relationship. And so the relationship comes first, and then the task. Well, the best example is the Japanese, where American businessmen constantly complain that it took so much time to get to the contract because all they wanted to do was to sit down and have dinner and drink. And the American viewed that as unnecessary time-wasting because it was basically a transaction to get the contract signed. But the Japanese viewed it as building enough uh, knowledge of each other to be able to trust each other, and the contract would be meaningless if there was no personal trust. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So we talked about rugged individualism and competition as one of the first traits in our chapter, our book chapter. We wrote about seven traits of white male culture in the U.S. and action over reflection or task over relationship we just talked about. You mentioned the second one quickly, which was low tolerance of uncertainty, which I think of as kind of either or thinking, wanting to simplify things into a black-white perspective. Is there more you want to say about that? Well, the first thing I want to do is is change the word traits to basic assumptions mm -hmm. about how things should be. There are values embedded Thanks. in these, what you're calling traits. It's the values that matter, that we really believe it's better to be sure than to be unsure. That's what we would mean by intolerance of ambiguity. The reason we're also obsessed with measurement is because we believe that numbers give you a greater sense of assurance that something is what it's supposed to be. So you find even in personnel management, where you're trying to measure performance, which is a very difficult thing to, to measure accurately, we prefer to put a number on it. So we rate people in terms of a distribution. You're a number one, you're a number two. And that gives us a sense of assurance, 
even though it's a meaningless number when you get to a personality. In the field of diversity, people deal with wanting certainty by counting numbers. What representation do we have in what place? And they overemphasize that they think diversity is a numbers game as opposed to what's the feel and how included are those people feeling in terms of their voice being valued and their perspectives being appreciated? Well, with that goes another one of these deep assumptions which we've talked about, namely that in the world of work particularly, the value is to be rational and logical and clear thinking and to avoid any kind of emotion because emotion or emotional thinking makes you uncertain and therefore possibly wrong and you don't want to be wrong. So you overemphasize what is seen as clear and logical thinking. An example that came up in the business world, which overrides often even national cultures, in a U.S. subsidiary of, a, of an American chemical company, they needed a European manager, and their best candidate was the head of the Italian branch, who had a very good performance record, and they wanted to put him on the Europe board, and several American executives said, yeah, but we can't do that because he's much too emotional. And several other people said, well, so what? Well, because he loses his cool at a meeting, and then we're not sure that he's thinking clearly anymore. And there's sort of the automatic assumption that if there's emotion involved, it means it might be wrong. And so we don't trust people who get emotional when they're trying to do a task. It's almost like rationality or emotion as an assumption, it's an either or, which I think comes from that low tolerance of uncertainty. You can be rational and you can't be emotional and rational at the same time because emotion cancels out that rationality. So I don't think other cultures have that belief. I think they leave room for both. Well, you see, they're all connected because rugged individualism means you own it. And if you own it, you want to be sure. In a more collectivist culture, one person doesn't own it all. <laughs> one person is part of a community, and the community can be right or wrong, but there isn't the onus on the individual to be right or wrong. In the business world, one of the worst examples of this is point accountability. Whenever we assign a task, we automatically think one person has to be accountable. And why? So that if things go wrong, we have a way of blaming one person. If you have a broader perspective toward relationships and groups, you realize that when things do go wrong, it's almost always that several people did something wrong and the combination led to the problem, but we prefer getting, what do we call it, the deep root of it. What's the single cause? In the safety arena, we're terrible at that. We're always looking for the single cause when we know that accidents are always multiply caused. 
So I can see how these cultural basic assumptions could have us seeing some of what's happening in interactions and blind to other things that are affecting things. There's one other one that strikes me that's very much connected, and in a way we've already alluded to it, and that is that that status in our society comes from accomplishment, not connection. I previously referred to it as connection being where you came from, but I think we need to see that it also applies to immediate connection, that the status of the great basketball player is not so much that he happened to be in a team that performed very well, but because he shot so well. Even though the coach will say the reason the team won is because of the incredible teamwork. The kudos and the Hall of Fame and all the rewards still go to the individual performer, even in the team context. That's a very problematic thing in the culture, especially in the sports world where it's so obvious especially in basketball and hockey and soccer, that unless the whole team performs, the superstar cannot do his or her thing. There's probably many cultures that wouldn't even have a most valuable player. They would just appreciate the team. Or they would treat them both equally. You needed the player and you needed the team as well. Yeah, when I think of status and rank over connection too, I think of Deborah Tannen's work about gender and that her research points to how men emphasize how an interaction affects us from a hierarchy perspective and how women have more permission to be more vulnerable with each other and connect. And that men slowly are realizing we can be a bit lonely. We don't have that same connection. We don't have the permission to connect as men going out and doing activities unless we're doing something together to happen to be connecting a little bit. Back to that task focus, giving us permission to build relationship. There are two points, I think, that need to be made in relation to that. One is that biologically women have a fundamental relationship through childbirth with another human being that men do not experience at a fundamental level. So it's not in a way surprising that women end up being more often the homemaker because not only do they have that initial connection with their baby, but they are often put into a position of having to build relationships with the children, with the husband, and so on, which then carries over into a skill And you could almost talk about a women's culture is initially more relational because they've been successful and had to do it that way. Where this hurts, however, is when you begin to value the individual action over the group action and just treat the group action, the relational stuff, as a means to an end rather than an end in itself on an equal par, which also relates to another point here, which is that because men are out hunting and fishing and doing stuff and accomplishing things, they tend to be totally action-oriented, 
whereas women, because they're often at home dealing with children, managing the whole household, tend to have time to reflect and think about things. So one of the biggest problems in working with men is to get them to stop and even think what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing and how they're doing it. So this action versus reflection is in a way a particular problem in the white male culture that has these other values embedded in it. And it's kind of forms a syndrome, individualistic, competitive, action, winning, which rules out groups, relationships, reflection. Mm -hmm. And I think another part that even turbocharges that Ed, is the time is linear and future focused so that there's a scarcity of time. There's like a, we have to focus on, we're burning daylight, we have to move, we have only a certain amount of time to get stuff done. It's a linear sense versus a cyclical sense that some cultures have. And a near future focused, let's just focus on getting results for the next quarter. Is that something you've seen too? Yeah, the, the study of time across cultures is very interesting. There is one very useful concept that anthropologists use, and that is monochronic linear time versus polychronic time. In linear time, things happen sequentially, and therefore you need an appointment book and you need to allocate specific tasks to specific units of time. Polychronic time was what they observe in tribal cultures where the tribal council will sit around and they have maybe five or six problems to solve, but rather than putting them in order, they try to work on all of them at once and the time it takes is the unit of time. So where we see that in our culture, for example, is in a dentist's office, where the dentist will work on four chairs at once and go back and forth, and the dentist's day is done when all four patients are done, not when any one patient is done. So that's a kind of a mild form of polychronic. But the concept that you hang in there it's the king holding court, and all the people with problems are all there, and court is over when they've all been worked on, which is a very alien concept to an American manager. He wouldn't bring in all his direct reports and say, let's look at all the problems we've got, and yet that's exactly how some of the best designs, for example, in the auto industry are done not sequentially by having the engine group and then the chassis group and then the tire group do it sequentially, but bringing each designer into one unit, making them into a single unit and solving all the problems at once. More they, of a collectivist approach to that, a team approach. and A group team approach, right. And doesn't that require more of a relational orientation? Well, the bottom line of everything we're talking about is that the Achilles heel 
of what we're here identifying as the white male culture around these deep assumptions, the Achilles heel is that the problems of our society and how to continue to be successful on a larger scale no longer lend themselves to this individualistic competitive approach. So we see in, in medicine especially, and to some degree in, in community and the nonprofit sector, much more emphasis on we've got to get more collective. We've got to bring the group together, share the problems and figure out the solution because if we don't become a group, the solution won't be implemented anyway. I don't see that yet happening enough in the business world, but when you look at Silicon Valley and the complicated problems that some of the young organizations are trying to solve, we see a lot of examples of more collaborative. I wouldn't use the word collectivist. That has too many political implications, but collaborative work where the team is the unit which does the work and begins to be evaluated as a team. You see it in the military, in these groups like the SEALs who go on a mission as a team. They are highly interdependent and they can't work unless they form particular types of relationships with each other. That leads to this point that you were alluding to, the relationships between people really have to evolve from transactional to more personal. I like the word. You actually came up with the word in some of your recent books, personize, more connection to people seeing themselves as each other as humans and coming to appreciate themselves, their skills and their viewpoints. It's funny that that word originated when I misspelled <laughs> spelled it on a flip chart, but several people in the group said, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not a misspelling, maybe it's a new concept. Because personalize is what in consumerism means fixing the clothing or the cosmetics or whatever to the particular needs of the client. Personize is a relational term that reflects, I'm curious about you, and I want to build what we would call a level two relationship, where level one is the pure transactional stuff. Level two is, I want to get to know you better in order to build more openness and trust, because I think I will enjoy the relationship, but more importantly, I think we will work together better if I get to know you. So even if I'm your boss and you're my direct report, I have the choice of saying, well, let's keep our professional distance. Here's your job description. You go do it and I'll evaluate you and we'll see how it goes. And discovering that that leaves the direct report very wide open to whatever they want to do, including withholding information, telling the boss what the boss wants to hear rather than the truth. And if the boss begins to realize that, the boss can say, you know, 
we're not going to get anywhere getting this job done if you don't tell me exactly what's going on in your domain. And we're not going to get there unless we get to know each other. So let's have lunch on Monday and start that process. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of when I was back in the outward bound instructor days. There was an adage as a instructors, we said, if you're having problems with a student, you need to get in the canoe and paddle with them mm. and really just personize them and each other, get to know them in some other way than this problem part of them. Particularly around the work. It's not just let's go off and walk and let our hair down and tell each other all our secrets. That's not what personize means. Paddling the canoe together is exactly what personize should mean. It's in the context of work, I need to know how you work and how we would work together. I don't need to know about your family history. I don't need personizing to be a level three intimate relationship. So level one is transactional. Level two is personal, achieved by curiosity and personizing. Level three is intimate, which we want with our friends, with our family, where we really share the deeper emotions which aren't necessary for the work unless you're a SEALs team. I suspect that when the work gets very, very interdependent, where you're really trusting each other with your lives, at that level you probably, at least we are, told by military people that they often want the training to become level three level training so that when they're in combat, they totally trust each other with their lives. Yeah, that makes sense. So there is a middle ground then between just a shallower relationship that's minimal and a deep intimate relationship. And you're saying that's that's where we can figure out how to partner in these more complex tasks today in the more diverse world. Exactly. Back to the relay race, an interesting fact that we learned is that in the Olympics, the Americans generally were almost the best runners, the Jamaicans and so on all, always were even better. But we lost not because we came in second, but came in not at all because we dropped the baton. And we learned that the amount of time that the Japanese team in one Olympics, which came in third, spent on baton passing was about 10 times more than what the U.S. team spent on baton passing. Which to me makes sense, given their more collaborative focus as a, it would lead them to do that. And it's not, when I think about these basic assumptions of white male culture, which play out heavily in the U.S. and elements of them spread into other parts of the world, the uh, baton passing part isn't emphasized. And so that is a weak link in the whole process of of creating partnerships and then when you go into the realm of inclusion and diversity it's even more critical to be able to have relationships that can tolerate conversations about intent and impact when people bump into each other and misunderstand each other there's got to be some trust and some willingness to hear each other out totally and a good example of that has come up 
in medicine, there was a study done of a new open heart procedure that required uh, more collaboration between the members of the team doing the operation. And a colleague of mine, Amy Edmondson, studied 16 hospitals where eight of those hospitals ended up using the new procedure and eight hospitals tried it, said it was too complicated and abandoned it, went back to the old, more complex uh, open heart procedure. So Amy wanted to know what makes the difference. And she found that on all the criteria of type of hospital, location, and so on, she could find no difference. The difference, it turned out, was how the senior cardiac surgeon approached the task. So in the hospitals that ended up not using the procedure, the senior cardiac surgeon said, I want the best anesthetist, the best OR nurse, and the best techs. This is a tough professional job. They went at it, they tried it, they ran into all kinds of difficulties and concluded that this was not a procedure that was feasible for them to use. So what was going on in these eight hospitals that they end up using the procedure? The cardiac surgeons, instead of saying, I want the best profession, said, I would like some volunteers to work with me on this. Right off the bat, think of what a difference that makes motivationally. Then once he vetted them to make sure they had the competencies he needed, he said, let's go off and have lunch together. And what does symbolically having lunch together mean? It means let's get less transactional and let's begin to find out who we are and how this is going to work. And then they found a simulator and practiced together so that by the time they actually had a real patient, they knew each other very well. They were in good level two relationships. They trusted each other. They knew what would happen if something unexpected happened, who would do what. So for them to end up using the procedure seemed easy and routine. Now, if you think of those as basic categories of work, think of how differently we should organize work from treating it as just get the right people in the room, give them their job description, versus let's see who wants to do this, let's see who has the competencies, and let's then build a group. It sounds like in that second example, there was room for more head and heart. There was room for people who wanted, felt motivated, moved, wanted to volunteer, wanted to be part of it. It was just uh, beyond just a rational thing. There's humans there. The issue is, would this have worked differently if the first kind of cardiac surgeon had recognized that this transactional keep your distance stuff is not only not any heart, but it's actually dysfunctional, <laughs> that you actually can't get the job done unless you build those relationships. That's the huge conclusion that I'm reaching, that we have to push over and over again. A lot of kind of work in today's society 
cannot get done transactionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, my son Peter made an observation that I think is very deep. He said anything that can be done transactionally will eventually be done by robots. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you need the humans for is the heart. Mm-hmm. You don't need the humans for the transaction. The robot can be taught to do that. Yeah. Isn't that a profound message? That is great. I mean, it's exciting, actually, to hear you talk about that because we won't be successful in the future unless we find a way to relate at a heart level that's appropriate to get work done. This is the end of part one of our two-part interview with Edgar Schein. Join us in the next podcast episode for Ed's view on WMFDP's White Men's Caucus as a learning path for white men and how this intersects with Ed's concepts of humble inquiry and the need for level two relationships at work. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.